Today's passage is Ruth chapter 4. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer, of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one beside you to redeem it. And I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel, concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilian and to Malon. Also, Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witness this day. Then all the people who are at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like, like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give to you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and, beca and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be, the, blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age, for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the woman of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. This is the word of the Lord. Well done, and thank you. I'm glad I didn't have to read that passage. Those are some hard names. <clears throat> We're in Ruth 4. This is the fourth week in our series in the book of Ruth. And um, I've really enjoyed this series, and I hope you have as well. I've read this, of course, many times, as if you've grown up around church, around the Bible, you have as well. But I never realized the depth of the story uh, that is in here. And it's, 
Each week, it's dawning on me more and more, the depth of this great story. And it is a story. It's a narrative. And so I need to kind of catch you up each week because uh, so, some of you have not been with us each week. So previously on Ruth, and I'll try to make my summary this week a little bit shorter than the last. But Naomi and her husband, Elimelech, along with their two sons, had to flee Bethlehem, which is in the southern part of Israel, uh, to what is now modern-day uh, Jordan in Moab because there was this great famine. They became refugees. Naomi, when they got there, lost her husband. And then 10 years later, after her sons had uh, married Moabite women, uh, she lost both of her sons as well. And now they've come back to Bethlehem, she and Ruth, because the famine is over now. Uh, Women had very little rights or protection in this culture, and so they are both very vulnerable. But in this story, We've seen time and time again, God is demonstrating his unbelievable faithfulness to Naomi and to Ruth, especially through Ruth. Um, Last week, we saw that Ruth presses well past the letter of the law into the spirit of the law, asking Boaz to redeem Elimelech's land, which is uh, Naomi's husband, and to marry her, Ruth. He promises to do so, but he has to check with a near relative first uh, and and check to see if he wants to redeem the land and to marry Ruth. And this is where we pick up on the story today. Boaz goes to town, okay, to the city gate. Four points today, and and you're lucky. It could have been like 17 because there's so much in this chapter, it's unbelievable. First, Naomi. We're going to look at her story again briefly and talk about redeeming tears. We're going to look at Boaz redeeming masculinity, Bethlehem, redeeming community, and fourth, genealogy, redeeming the world. First, uh, Naomi, redeeming tears. And before I get there, I want to give some credit to uh, an author that I've been reading throughout this series, and she's had a huge impact on my my thoughts and and the way this has flowed. It's Carolyn Custis James. She wrote a great book called Finding God in the Margins in this book of Ruth. First, Naomi and redeeming tears. Uh, Naomi's story is really a gift to us, the church, because if you remember in in the beginning, when she gets back to Bethlehem, she's very honest about her emotions, and she says, look, don't call me pleasant any longer. That's her name. Uh, Naomi means pleasant. Instead, call me Mara, right, which means bitterness. And and why she is a gift to us is because she, like her great-great-grandson David later, is honest with her emotions and her feelings, her anger, her doubt, her frustrations, the fact that she's feeling bitter. If you're honest with yourself, uh, you know that as a real believer, a true believer in Christ, you can have dark nights of the soul where you feel as if God has abandoned you where you feel alone, where you feel like as you pray, the the prayers are not going anywhere. They're just bouncing off the ceiling. Your life circumstances may have led you to feel that way. Like, God does not seem to be for me. And hers is a tragic story. She's a female Job, really, in the Old Testament. Her story is one of great loss. And we see in here what it looks like to lament and, and to have a dark night of the soul. And I'm thankful for that. We don't stay there as believers. God gives us hope in the morning, but there are dark, dark nights at times and seasons and times. Nicholas Walterstorff is a a great philosopher and has written a number of awesome books and um, is is a believer. He wrote a book about loss and grief called A Lament for a Son after he lost his own son uh, to a tragic 
uh, climbing accident. And he says this, the world now has a hole in it. I shall look at the world through tears. Perhaps I shall see things that dry-eyed I could never see. And so as we think about Naomi, as we think about the reality of your own life and the own suffering, your own suffering that you maybe have gone through or perhaps that you're going through right now, I have a few questions for you. Do you know this reality for your own life? God can handle uh, the weight of your soul. God can handle your doubt. He's God after all. He is the one who creates all things. It's not as if he doesn't know what you're feeling. In fact, what I've, I've found in myself, because guys are not often uh, so in touch with their feelings, that I know for a fact the Lord knows more about what I'm feeling than I do. He knows the depths of my heart far more than I ever will. And so for us to be honest with him, of course, it makes sense. Do you know this reality? What has God taught you in suffering that he could never ta- teach you in prosperity? Another great question. What is God teaching you in suffering that he could never teach you in prosperity? And, and by the way, this totally dismantles the prosperity gospel. The Bible <laughs> never, ever teaches a prosperity theology that, that if you just follow God, that everything's going to go great. Like, look at Naomi. She's been faithful, and yet her circumstances tell a different story. What has loss and grief taught you? And those of you that have gone through great grief and loss and death and mourning and divorce and and come through on the other side with faith intact and hope in spite of all the great loss, oh, we need you. We need you in our communities. We need you in church. We need you uh, to be reflecting to us, how did you get through it? Teach us, because we all face it. Your story encourages our story. Where have you seen the threads of God's faithfulness woven into your story of redemption, even in loss? Think about that. And for those of us that have suffered, share with with others what the Lord has taught you through suffering that he could never teach you in prosperity. So Naomi, redeeming tears. God uses even our suffering, even the stuff that Satan would mean for evil, God means for good, right? We see that throughout the Bible, that God means to redeem even our suffering. Second, we see Boaz, and we're going to spend a good amount of time here today, redeeming masculinity. In the past several years, I don't know if you've noticed, but we've seen example after example of toxic masculinity at every layer and level of our society. Powerful men who have used their authority to harm, take advantage, and abuse instead of protecting, providing, serving, and blessing. Hollywood and Washington are easy targets, right? Rife with examples. But it's not just producers and politicians, it's also pastors and ministry leaders. The president of the largest evangelical university in the United States, if not the world, has been exposed as as a hypocrite, filled with inappropriate behavior. Uh, The world's foremost Christian apologist, who I read his books every time they came out, immediately, and, and hung on every word. I got to see him speak live on multiple occasions. And such a brilliant mind. My faith was strengthened and made more reasonable because of his ministry, only to find out that he was an abusive man and a cruel one as well. Sexually abusive. Many, many women. 
the father of the seeker-driven church model, the leader of a worldwide network, the pastor of a church with more than 25,000 people in attendance, every week was exposed as a liar and an abuser, and I've heard no apology or repentance from him. He was a hero of mine. He is one of the earthly reasons why I decided to become a pastor. I met him personally. I heard him speak at a conference. And, he, and the way he cast vision for the church and giving your life what a local body could look like made me want to be a pastor. Many of us have listened to the lengthy podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, and heard example after example of abuse of power and horrible examples of toxic masculinity and leadership. And that same pastor remains unrepentant, unaccountable, and he's pastoring a large growing church right here in our own city. Many of you, because I've heard your story, many of you have personal stories of abusive pastors, abusive leaders who've done wrong, not repented, and it's left a wake of emotional harm in our city. Becky and I discovered that right after we moved here, that there had been a lot of abuse of power in the church and it was affecting the, the East Valley incredibly. Almost everyone I was talking to had that in their wake. And as a pastor, I feel responsibility for that, as, as do many of my pastor friends. And I, I want to repent personally and just say, I am so sorry for the ways the church has broken trust and done harm in the name of Christ. And it's so disorienting when somebody who loves Jesus and is supposed to be walking loves and walk in his ways, in his ways of, of meekness and mildness and humility and protection and care and blessing instead does harm and abuse. It is disorienting. And many people have that abusive situation in their life. That's why many people are leaving the church and even leaving Christianity altogether. But today... We see a better example, but I want to stop for just a second and say this. This is not the way of Jesus, these bad examples. And there's many, many more. We could spend the rest of the day sharing bad examples. And that is not the way of Jesus, and God is not mocked. People who don't repent, if there truly is not repentance, there will be eternal accountability. God is not mocked. In the book of Ruth, though, we see amazing example of what God's design is for the feminine and the masculine. In fact, what you see in a way, I've been blown away by studying this book because uh, in this story, if you notice, there are no antagonists. There's only protagonists. O little town of Bethlehem has been shocking to me of how beautiful it was, and in a way... I have to believe that in some way in God's good providence and sovereignty as he is weaving together his word that he's telling a story in a sense of saying, I'm going to show you what the kingdom looks like through this little town of Bethlehem in the book of Ruth long before the king of kings and lord of lords is born there. More on that in a minute. Last week, we see Ruth appealing to Boaz on the basis of his being a kinsman redeemer, a near relative, to redeem Elimelech's land from Leviticus 25 and to marry her according to Leverite law in Deuteronomy 25. But she proposes to him. She says, redeem the land, marry me. Uh, women don't even do that in our culture, do they? I mean, I don't, I don't know the last time I heard of a, an example of a lady asking a man. Even now, she's, she's, she does this. She is poor. She has no power. She has no money or resources. He has everything. 
She's the outsider. She's the immigrant. She's not a, she's, she's a, literally a pagan. She is no longer a pagan. She has faith in Yahweh now, but she comes from pagan heritage. And she's appealing to the Israelite, a long lineage. You saw his genealogy. And, and he, she says, marry me. She has nothing. He has everything. She's a woman. He's a man. And she says, marry me. It's unbelievable. Boaz, though, isn't Elimelech's nearest relative, and he isn't a blood brother either. And so legally, he has no obligation whatsoever to marry her or to redeem the land. None. In Boaz, though, we see that it isn't a sin to have privilege or a place of authority. And our whole, our whole society is having a conversation about this. What does it mean to have privilege? And we see here, among among redeemed people, a place of privilege and authority can be used by men and women alike to bless and do great good. And he does that. Instead of abusing, he does great good. Boaz, though, had multiple occasions to abuse her and take advantage of her. You see it throughout the story. If he had wanted to, uh, he could have taken advantage of her over and over again. But he doesn't. Instead, he protects he provides, he serves her, and he blesses her again and again and again. This is what it means to actually be a man of God. Not the toxic, abusive examples that we've seen everywhere, especially among the people of God. We expect it from uh, politicians and producers, but people who follow Jesus, this can't be. She asked him to redeem the land and to marry her, and he promises to do so, but he must go to this near redeemer first. So Boaz goes to the city gate the next morning, and that's where we pick up the story today. The city gate was the place where everyone would come and go, and there would be commerce and legal action would take place and so forth. So he literally, it's kind of like, I don't know, the local Starbucks, but it's, it's a gate, right? I'm, I'm assuming this is the way you get in and out of town. It's where everybody goes and comes. And so he just waits there for this near redeemer to come through, and, and he does. And then he says, hey, hold on a minute. He grabs 10 elders of the city because everyone's hanging out there. It must be like cheers of you know Bethlehem. And so, hey, come on over here, Norm and everybody else, 10 of you, the elders of the city. I, you need to hear this. So he says, he says this, Boaz tells him the story regarding Elimelech's land. Um, and he, the, this nearer relative, has the first right of refusal on the land. He could purchase it from Naomi or he could let it pass. But here's the thing. Again, Elimelech's dead. His sons are dead. Naomi is a woman. She has no right to own the land. He literally could have just said this man, well, that, I'm just going to take that land because there's no woman. I'm not going to pay a woman for this land. But Boaz speaks up for her to be able to sell it and says, if you don't want it, I will redeem it. But the guy says, well, I want it because it's a great opportunity. There's no sons to inherit the land. It's free land, basically. I'll give you a little bit of money, Naomi, and I get this land, and it's, I'm going to get it with no strings attached. But Boaz says, now, wait a minute, there's a catch. <laughs> if you buy the land, you got to marry Ruth. Now, he quickly says, then, then I don't want it. <laughs> now, here's why. Here's the thing. If, if you marry Ruth, 
Uh, what happens is if, if Ruth has a son, what, what Boaz is appealing to, that son will actually be an heir of Elimelech because the whole reason he's doing this in redeeming the land and marrying her is to carry on the dead man's name and the dead sons. This son, if, if whoever marries Ruth and has a son, that son will carry on Elimelech's name, not your name, and that land will no longer be your land. Even if you redeemed it, it will be Elimelech's lineage's land. Amazing. So that guy's like, that's not a good deal. I want out, but not Boaz. Boaz says, I will do that. I will redeem the land. I will buy it, and I will marry Ruth, even with all of that cost. Let's stop for a second. Isn't this crazy? There's no Pharisees in this story. We're so used, I'm so used to the Gospels where every time Jesus is doing some good, you've got the, the Pharisees coming along going, Ugh, you know, and they're just doing evil, right? And they're, 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 they're uh, what's the word? Uh, they're murmuring constantly on the sideline and bickering and, and, and picking, and he doesn't know what sinners he's hanging out with. And so there aren't any there. No Pharisee comes along and says, she's a woman, she doesn't own the land, she can't have it. There's no Pharisee that comes along and says, you're living far too graciously here, far too in the spirit of the law instead of the letter of the law. It just doesn't happen. It's amazing. Oh, little town of Bethlehem is living out what it looks like to be a redeemed people. It also shows the standing of Boaz, that this guy had serious clout in the city, and what he said was kind of going to go... This unnamed relative says, nope, too much, I went out, but not Boaz. And look at the sacrificial love and example of what godly masculinity actually looks like. He does it to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day, he says. He pays Naomi for the land. Here, Naomi, here's a bunch of money for the land. And in essence, if he has a son, he's saying, and here's the land also. You get cash for the land and the land. And that's exactly what happens. And by the way, here's the son also. The son that Ruth is going to bear me. Beautiful. This is what godly masculinity looks like. Serving, protecting using your power for good and your authority and, and whatever privilege you may have in life to serve. This is what we're called to do. So friends, if you have any place of authority in life, if God has given you some privilege in life, then, then, then that's not necessarily sinful, but there is a temptation to use and abuse your power. It's pervasive everywhere because of the human heart. But as a redeemed people, we can use all of our privilege and wealth and resources to bless and to be a blessing especially to the poor and the marginalized and the underprivileged. Now, let's look at Bethlehem, this redeemed community. In this story, we get to see what a redeemed humanity actually looks like. It really is profound and beautiful. Naomi shows us what it means to be restored to joy. Even after such great hardship, she, she begins to see God's has said woven into her story, Ruth and Boaz stand out in bold color as examples of godly faithfulness, and other than Jesus, uh, very few do like this. Not like this. But there's no, no one's doing any wrong. I mean, Abraham, my goodness, train wreck. Uh, Moses, also. I mean, look, David. Oh, don't get me started. Like, 
the heroes of the faith are big sinners, but Boaz and Ruth are just like, where's the, where, I don't see any wrong. Even the citizens of Bethlehem are shining examples of the way the body of Christ ought to operate. How we ought to live. When Naomi comes home and says, I am bitter. Don't call me, don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me Mara. They don't say like, you backslider, what is your problem? You know, like, why don't you get your spiritual act together? Quit complaining so much. <laughs> they let her share her grief and her emotions, and they remain silent. They don't lecture her like Job's friends do. They just keep their mouth shut. This is the way to behave when people are grieving. Uh, tell people, I love you. I'm praying for you. I may not fully understand what you're going through, but I'm here for you. And then, shut it. <laughs> Until another day. It may be years before you open your mouth regarding that issue. But silently sit with those who are grieving. When she brings home a Gentile, a foreigner, a literal pagan, <laughs> they don't shun her. And by the way, She's an immigrant, strike one. She's an outsider. Uh, she's a widow, strike two. And she's barren, strike three. She has nothing in this society. In this culture, she means nothing. She's a bad person. All three of these things. This happens to bad people, not good people. They would shun her, but they don't. Instead, they speak about her so much and so well and build up her reputation that when Boaz hears about her for the first time, when he sees her for the first time, he's already had so many good reports about her. He's like, this is a great woman. A Moabite, widowed, uh, barren woman is an amazing woman because the community is speaking so well of her. When Boaz calls the elders and appeals to the spirit of the law and applies the land ownership to a woman, no one disagrees. They all stand and say, yep, that's what we're doing. Uh, then they bless this immigrant outside barren widow with the following benediction or blessing in verse 11. All the people who were at the gate and the elders said, it kind of reminds me, I'm going to start, do you guys ever watch It's a Wonderful Life? I mean... I love that movie. <laughs> and at the end, when every, all the chips are down and they all come pouring in with money for George at the end, I lose my cool every time, man. I'm just, I'm about to cry right now thinking about it. And so it's just like, all, everyone's just rising up in this community to bless, just like George here. Like here they come. Listen, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman. They're talking about Ruth. Be like, who is coming into your house like Rachel and like Leah. Those are heavy hitters in God's economy. <laughs> Rachel and Leah, wow. Who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Epaphrath, whatever, and be renowned in Bethlehem. Can't say that. Instead of gossip and scorn, they bless the union. When Ruth bore a son, the woman, women all gathered around and blessed Naomi. They shower Naomi with blessing instead of saying, your husband died and your sons died and you were struck with famine. You got to be a sinner. Where's the sin? You're hiding something. They were silent in her affliction and they were vocal uh, in her provision. When God provided, they, they rose up and blessed her. But when she was hurting and suffering, they remained, they remained silent and they didn't, they didn't gossip about her. They didn't speak poorly of her. And then they bless Ruth with a, kind of the ultimate blessing. They say that she's better 
than seven sons. What's the perfect number in Hebrew? Seven. Uh, women don't count. Daughters aren't any good. They can't inherit. They have no power. Only sons matter in this culture. But they say, no, she, Ruth, is better to you than seven sons, than the perfect amount of sons. She's the perfect son to you. She's better than the perfect son. What's a son supposed to do for a widow? If your mom, if you're the son and your mom is widowed, you're to pro protect, provide, care for, bless, be there in thick and thin to die with you, uh, to be buried with you. And that's what Ruth does for her. She's better. She's better than seven. Women, so look at this, and I want you to look at this from the church's perspective. How we are to be. Women don't inherit land back then, uh, but in that community they did. Widows and barren women are nobodies, but in this redeemed community, uh, they were noble. Ruth was called noble, the same word that Boaz is called in the Hebrew. Only sons matter to families in this culture, but not in this church. Ruth is better than seven sons. And here's my takeaway. Naomi, by the way, this whole story is really about Naomi. Ruth, Ruth obviously shines, but like it begins with Naomi and it ends with Naomi. And, and throughout, her, her story is sprinkled in. Her, her sons and her husband are named throughout every chapter. It could have been called Naomi. She doesn't feel close to God. Who would after going through that? Her circumstance left her feeling that God was against her. But as we look at her story, we see God shouting to her over and over and over through Ruth, through Boaz, and through God's people in that, in that church in Bethlehem, that synagogue. I love you. My, my faithfulness is with you, and I love you. God is whispering at times and raising his voice at others and saying, look, look around you. And I want to encourage you as you're at your story, if you're going through suffering right now and difficulty, sometimes it feels as if God is against you, that he's rising up to testify against you. That's what Naomi said about herself. That's how she felt. But she began to see over time as she looked around as God's people blessed her and were faithful to her. She saw in her, in the people of God, God's faithfulness. And that's why we need to be the people of God for one another. We must bless one another in similar ways so that when we go through trial and tribulation and difficulty, we don't feel God the same way that we once did. God can warm our hearts with his hesed, his covenantal blessing, his faithfulness through God's people, through one another. There is power to bless, and there's power to curse. There have been so many bad examples, but look what a redeemed community can do. Look what we can do when we do good. Friends, I want us to think about this for a minute, and there's so many conversations going around. If you're a podcast junkie like me, or a news junkie, or reading an article in blogs, there's information, I don't even know how to synthesize it all, about the church. But I know this for sure. There's some stuff that needs to be torn down. There's some things that really need to change in the body of Christ, in the world, but particularly in the West and the United States. 
And some people are using the word deconstruction. And that word, it, it depends how you hear it. And if by deconstruction you mean leaving the faith in Jesus, then I'm not for it. But what many people are doing is this. It's demolition. When we remodeled our house, we were building something new. And we had to do demo. We had to tear out everything. Becky and I literally took a sledgehammer, and we broke up our, our, our entire kitchen with sledge. It was kind of fun. We got lots of videos of it. Like, and it was kind of sad, too. It's like, our kids ate breakfast here you know, for 15 years and tore it down. But you tear things down to get to the foundation. But you don't tear the foundation down. Too many people are tearing the foundation down, the foundation of Christ and his word, and the truth of, uh, you know, that there is still a truth, and that Jesus is the truth. I get that it's hard. I get that it's difficult. But don't tear down the foundation. We have Jesus. But there's a lot that needs to be dismantled. There's a lot that needs to be demoed. That nasty carpet needs to be torn out in this 70s decor. Like, let's get rid of it, right? Let's update. But don't lose your foundation. So much needs to be torn down. The abuse, the cover-up, the lies, the hypocrisy. Tear it down, for God's sakes. It's not the way of Jesus. Amen? All of this evil done in God's name, it's killing people. It's making people lose their faith, walk away, be, and some people may never come back again. We've all propped it up to some degree as well. In the name of, of fruit-bearing and people, well, that person is doing a lot of good for the kingdom. A lot of people are coming and listening, and, and we let evil go and stand by. That should be torn down. That should be dismantled. That should be destroyed. But look at what good we can do for the hurting and the poor and the marginalized and the widow and the orphan, the immigrant, and the person with no hope, even in our midst right here today. By just being the people of God for one another, not being a protagonist, uh, an antagonist, being a protagonist, being a part of the people of God to do blessing instead of cursing in simple ways and in profound ways. There's power to bless and there's power to curse. But look what a redeemed community can do. Finally, genealogy and redeeming the world. They named Ruth's son Obed. And then they gave the son to Naomi. Naomi's probably living with them. I mean, it's a fa- they don't live like we do, right? Everyone has their own house and suburbs or whatever. Like they, they're, they're together. They're living together. But that was Naomi's child. It was to carry on Naomi's lineage and line. They're, that na- they're all raising the child together in community. But that child was counted as Naomi's and Elimelech's. His name was Obed. And Obed was the father of Jesse. And Jesse was the father of who? Good job, class. David. And you know who he is. He's, he was the king of Israel. And David was the great, 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 grandfather of who? Jesus, who was born where? Little town of Bethlehem. You're amazing. <laughs> really, truly. I'll never sing that song the same way again. Like, Bethlehem is amazing, this amazing place where kings came from, and Ruth was there, and Obed, and all these amazing things. It all went down in Bethlehem. It was by God's design. Oh, little town of Bethlehem. Look at the way that Ruth and Boaz gave up everything to redeem Naomi. Everything. 
Ruth gives up her own people in her own comfort to redeem Naomi. Ruth gives up her safety to go to the fields. Boaz gives up money, land, and then a son along with Ruth, withholding nothing to redeem this poor widow. Who does that sound like? Uh, Maybe a greater redeemer, a nearer redeemer, a better redeemer. Jesus, who was God, fully God, God in the flesh, did not consider equality with God something to grasp, to hang on to. Even though he's fully God, he became a man, giving up the privileges of that moment and the glory that is all due to him. He became a servant, becoming a man and serving us unto death on a cross that we may be redeemed. He lived the life I should have lived, and I have not lived as a sinner, as a broken sinner. I have not lived a redeemed life like that. He did, though, on my behalf, for me, for you. He lived the life I should have lived and have never lived, and then he died the death that I absolutely deserved. I deserve God's judgment and wrath and anger. I deserve to be cut off from God. But in Jesus Christ, he died that death so that I might not have to. He received the penalty so that it will never fall on you or me as his sons and daughters. He redeemed us from the debt that is our sin. He bought us out of the slavery that was our sin. There is obviously no greater redeemer. It's all about Jesus. The whole Bible is about Jesus. Friends, let's cling to him. And let's tear some stuff down. The hypocrisy, the bitterness, the angers, the politics, putting our hope in politics. What are we thinking? Riches, money, power. What are we thinking? These are foolishness. It's idols. Let's tear some stuff down and let's build on the foundation that is Jesus. And let's be the redeemed community so so that those who need Christ can be welcomed and blessed. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, we we need you as the body of Christ today more than ever. We're keenly aware of that. And I just thank you for this great example in Naomi and Ruth and Boaz and this community of Bethlehem of what redemption lived out on planet Earth can look like, where the gospel is so empowering people that good is done where there's protection and the powerful are using their gifts and their resources to provide and to not abuse or take advantage of, but to do justice and to love mercy, to do what is right in your eyes, to walk humbly with you, our God. Please help us to do that, Father. We beg you in Jesus' good name. Amen.